Hello, dreamers, and welcome to this week's episode. Before we dive in, I have a couple of things that I want to say about the podcast. This is an independent production that is brought to you on a weekly-ish basis and is always ad-free, which means I depend on the listeners to keep the show going, and there are several ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform that you listen to your shows on. You can recommend us in true crime discussion groups on social media platforms or on places like Reddit and whatnot. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, comment, share, tweet, retweet, whatever. And if you would like to go above and beyond and you have an extra dollar or two each month, you can become a Patreon supporter. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to nearly 90 exclusive episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. The August episode is already available. I covered the 2015 case of the Buchanan family out of Benicia, California. I also have, for those who support the show at the $5 tiers and above, an episode on the story of feuding neighbors, Bob Hall and Walter Stevens, out of Lompico, California. There is a 10-minute preview of that episode in your feeds. So listen to that and consider joining if you're not already a member. And I know some of you did. This week, I would like to thank Lisa O, Tony C, Raven P, Lynn S, Kathleen M, Megan O, Joe Keen, and Nate B for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or making a PayPal donation. There are several more of you who have joined this month. I will be sure to give you a shout out in the next episode. And if joining a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a contribution to the show through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. If you leave your mailing information in the notes, I'll send you a thank you card and a small gift from me as well. I would also like to take the time to wish longtime listener and supporter of the show, Tiffany C., and her nine-year-old son and birthday twin, Josiah, a very happy birthday. Even though I don't think Tiffany C. would allow her boy to listen past this shout-out, right? I want to thank you so much for supporting me through the years, and I hope you and your son have a fun and wonderful day. Josiah, enjoy your nine after this. It's all double digits from here until you turn 100. Okay, Tiffany, time to turn this episode off until your boy goes to bed. Birthday shoutouts were something that I used to do on the show a while back, but if your birthday is coming up and you'd like a little shouty shoutout, send me an email and I will try to get it in around the actual date. Also, please listen past the end of this episode to hear a promo from a podcast that you already may be listening to called Music City 911. It is hosted by Brandon. He is a 911 dispatcher in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you like hearing 911 calls and body cam audio and you like a Southern accent, then you might love this podcast. Okay, let's get into today's episode. I was just saying the other day somewhere that I don't cover very many mysteries and unsolved cases. Like some of you out there listening, I like a beginning, a middle, and an end. It just kind of feels complete and right. 
when there's a serving of justice. But I've been asked by several listeners over the years to cover the story. And while unsolved cases aren't always my favorites, this one seems like it could possibly be solved, even though it is more than 40 years cold. We are going to focus on the timeline of the case at first. I'm going to try to clarify some inconsistencies that I found throughout the various sources that have discussed this case throughout the years. However, what I am going to do is give you my own theory that I developed based on the information that I'm going to present to you in this 223rd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Night That Changed Keddy Forever. And there is a warning. This episode contains graphic details involving mass killing, crimes of a sexual nature, crimes against children, including child sexual abuse. This episode is not intended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sue and James Sharp were a married couple living in Connecticut up until July of 1979. James was in the Navy. Sue was a stay-at-home mom with five children, 15-year-old John, 14-year-old Sheila, 12-year-old Tina, 10-year-old Rick, and 5-year-old Greg. At the time our story takes place, Sue was 35 years old. She was a little more than a week away from turning 36, so many sources refer to her as being 36 years old, but because she was technically still 35 at the time, I'm going to refer to her being 35. The same thing seems to be happening with Tina's age. She was a little more than three months away from turning 13. Some sources will say that she was 13, but again, technically, she was 12. James was a husband who was physically abusive to Sue. They had been together since they were relatively young. They had their children while Sue was barely 20 or 21 years old. I don't know how old James was at the time, but they did have their children in very quick succession, with the exception of little Greg, who may have been a bit of a pleasant surprise. I've read in some articles or saw in a documentary on this case that James sexually abused both of his daughters, Sheila and Tina. It's been said that Tina was his quote-unquote favorite, which is just really gross and cringe to even hear myself say that. I don't want to say that Tina was any prettier or more attractive than Sheila. I don't believe that that was the case at all. I've just heard one person say that she was just this really angelic girl. It was her presence, her energy, but when it comes to being her dad's favorite Knowing that he allegedly sexually abused both of his girls is sick, and it's not at all what I meant when I described her that way. I do tend to believe that the sexual abuse allegations against James has some validity due to the fact that later on in the story, when his minor children needed to be taken in, they weren't sent to him. They went into the foster care system instead. Sue Sharp is an early hero in the story. Having had enough of James's abuse and possibly having learned of her girls being sexually abused by him too, she left. In 1979, Sue packed herself up 
and her five children, and she moved clear across the country, just about as far as you can go within the lower 48, from Connecticut to Northern California. Her brother, Don Davis, lived in a census-designated area in Plumas County called Quincy, which is located in the Sierra Nevada mountains and is about an hour and a half northwest of Reno, Nevada. In the fall of 1979, Sue got her own place in Keddy, California, also in Plumas County, and located about 10 minutes away from her brother's place in Quincy. There was a place there called Keddy Resort. Prior to the 1980s, it was considered an idyllic resort nestled in the Sierra Nevadas near the Feather River. It had a very rustic feel to it, with a hotel, a restaurant, and a variety of cabins that dotted the area, many of them were rentals. It promised visitors a tranquil place to vacation. Over time, the cabins became pretty run down, and today the Keddy Resort is no more, with most of the cabins, if not all of them, having been shuttered and demolished by the mid-2000s. And our story today did play a role in that happening. Sue and her children moved into cabin number 28. I will post a layout of the cabin on social media as soon as this episode is published. And I want you to try and take a good look at it as we go through this episode. Because the layout of the cabin is important when it comes to the theory that I have developed about this case. Sue and the children quickly became acquainted with the neighbors, particularly the neighbors in the cabins closest to theirs. Marilyn Smart resided in cabin 26 with her husband, Martin Smart, who is known as Marty, and we will refer to him as such from this point forward. And at the time that our story took place, he was 32 years old. I do not know how old Marilyn was at the time, She appeared in a documentary about this case in 2008. She looked to be at a pretty grandmotherly age. Details about her today are almost non-existent, though I did not find an obituary or find a grave for her, so I can only assume that she's still alive. Also living with them in cabin 26 are Marilyn's two children from previous relationships. 12-year-old Justin Eason, and his older brother, Cody. Some sources have referred to Justin as Justin Smart, but that is his stepfather's last name, not his. As for Cody, he does not factor into the story very much, so you really don't need to worry about him. But Justin, Martin, and Marilyn are pivotal characters in this narrative, so bear them in mind as we go along I may refer to them collectively as the smarts. Another individual living in cabin 26 with the smarts is a gentleman by the name of Severin John Bubetti. He goes by Bo, so I will refer to him as that moving forward. At the time our story took place, he was 49 years old. Born July 36, 1931 in Cook County, Illinois, He was rumored to have had ties to the Chicago Mafia outfit, and he had racked up some criminal history that involved at least one stint in prison for robbery. 
Marty and Bo met when Marty had sought treatment at a Veterans Affairs Hospital's mental health center located in Reno, Nevada, where he sought treatment for PTSD in March of 1981. From this point forward, I'm going to refer to the Veterans Affairs as the VA. Bo was also a patient there at the same time, and that is how the two of them became acquainted. It's been disputed as to whether or not Marty actually suffered from PTSD, because while he was in Vietnam during the war, he worked on the military base in Saigon as a cook. It's argued that he never saw or was involved in any military action, but I would argue that working in a war zone is working in a war zone, no matter what your role is. It can be traumatic. He sought treatment for a reason, so whether it was PTSD or some other mental health issues, he was there getting help, as was Bo. The men did not know each other for very long at all, which is surprising considering how this story unfolds. Because when they both checked out of the VA hospital at the beginning of April of 1981, Bo went to stay with Marty in Ketty at their cabin with Marilyn and her kids. So yeah, at the time the story took place, Bo lived in Ketty for all of 10 days. The other cabin next to the Sharps was cabin 27, and it is where the Seabolt family resided at the time that this story took place. They play a minor but important role in this case, and there aren't a tremendous amount of details about them, so I don't need to say much about them for now, aside from the fact that their cabin was located approximately 15 feet or 4.5 meters away from the Sharps cabin. One very important person in our story is a young man named Dana Hall Wingate. He was born February 8, 1964 in California. And aside from that, there is sadly very little to be found about him online. At the time the story happened, he was 17 years old and he was residing in a group home. He was friends with Sue's son, John, and they were hanging out together for that entire weekend of April 10th through the 12th. I really wish that I had more to tell you about him, aside from the reason why he's included in today's episode, but there's just nothing out there that I found. I did not read a book on this case, so there might be more information about him in a book. I just don't have one. I'm going to set the scene for you and then get into the timeline of Saturday, April 11th, going into Sunday, April 12th, 1981. It's the weekend, so a couple of kids are planning sleepovers with their friends, among other things that they're planning on doing. Around 11.30 that morning of Saturday the 11th, Sue and her daughter Sheila and son Greg were heading home from visiting friends in a neighboring town. On their way, they stopped in Quincy to pick up Ricky from baseball practice. From there, they were going to head to Ketty. However, along the way, Sue spotted her oldest son and her oldest child, John, along with his friend, Dana Wingate, hitchhiking along the side of the road. So she picked them up and all of them drove home together. 
A few hours later, sometime around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana decided to hitchhike back to Quincy. They had spent the previous night, which was Friday, April 10th, in Quincy. However, I do not know who they stayed with. It could have been John's uncle, Sue's brother, who resided in that town. And that's where they had all stayed for their first few months in California after they moved from Connecticut. And it's not very far from Ketty. On the evening of April 11th, Sue had plans to stay home with her two youngest boys, Ricky and Greg, along with their neighbor son, Justin Eason. Remember, they're two cabins over at number 26. So the boys had become friends in the 18 months since the Sharp family moved there into cabin 28. Sue had also become friends with Justin's mom, Marilyn. In fact, the women had a lot in common when it came to their home lives, which I'll go over a little bit later in the story. At the cabin in between Sue's and Marilyn's, I mentioned earlier, is cabin 27, the Seabolts. Sue's middlemost child, 12-year-old Tina, had been over at the Seabolts' place that afternoon and her older sister, 14-year-old Sheila, had plans to have a sleepover at their cabin that night. Sheila had gone over to their cabin sometime around 8 p.m., though some sources have reported it being as late as 10 p.m. Either way, Sheila was there for the night. Tina wanted to stay over at the Siebel's too for the sleepover, but Sue said no, she wanted her to come home. So sometime that evening, Tina went home. My best guesstimate based on all that I have read about this story is that she would have maybe arrived home around 9 p.m., possibly a little bit later. It's hard to say because I've seen so many different times reported, not just about this, but many aspects of this story. So now we are approaching bedtime for the children. And in cabin 28, the people inside the house are Sue, who is the only adult there, her three youngest children out of the five, Tina, Ricky, and Greg, and the boys' guest for the night, their neighbor, Justin, who is 12. Okay, I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. I will have pictures of the layout of the cabin on social media, but I'm going to just tell you now. The cabin, the way it's set up, if you're standing in the front door, you're pretty much looking directly into the living room, which is situated to the left. The door leading into the kitchen would be straight ahead. The kitchen is situated also to the left, adjacent and behind the living room. To the right is the entrance of the hallway, and the hallway is perpendicular to the living room. Standing in the entrance of the hall, to the left would be the bathroom, and past the bathroom is a bedroom that Tina and Sue share. To the immediate right, there is a door that leads into the boys' bedroom. This room has bunk beds and a sleeping cot in it. It's enough sleeping accommodations for three people. The living room sofa, which is up against the wall that's shared with the kitchen, and it faces the front door, and it has a fold-out bed inside of it. 
I have to assume that this is maybe where Sheila would normally sleep because there is absolutely no room for another bed based on the sketch of the house. In fact, the beds in that bedroom do not appear to be to scale, but one looks much bigger than the other. So Sue's bed might be a queen size while Tina's bed might be a twin size. I don't think Sheila slept in there, but the only thing that I've read is that Sue and Tina shared that bedroom. I did read in one report that there were three bedrooms, but the sketch only depicts two. Another report stated that the third bedroom was in the basement and that it was meant to be John's. However, it was unfinished. On this night, April 11th, 1981, Sue was in the living room. It appeared as though she was relaxing on the sofa, smoking cigarettes, and possibly watching TV. Tina was in her bedroom, alone, down the hallway to the left, and Ricky, Greg, and Justin were in the boys' bedroom to the right. Sheila was at the Seabolt's cabin next door, and John and Dana were hanging out in Quincy. Witnesses reported seeing the boys there that evening, with some sources having said that they were there as late as 10 p.m. Even though they spent the previous night in Quincy, they were not staying there the night of Saturday, the 11th. They were reportedly seen hitchhiking at the Gold Pan Lodge, which is still standing today. Nobody saw the boys get picked up. Nobody saw them get dropped off. But later on, we will hear about the person who claimed to have been the one who gave them a ride. And that person has said that they only dropped them off at the entrance of the resort, never driving any further past that onto the actual property itself. Like many other events in the timeline of this evening, I don't exactly know what time John and Dana arrived at cabin 28, but I do believe that everybody who was going to be in that house that night was already there when they did arrive. The next morning, Sheila walked over to her home from having spent the night before at the Seabolds. It was sometime between 7 and 8 a.m. I believe it was closer to more like 7.30 to 7.45. But like I said, a lot of the time frames in this case are hazy. When Sheila got to her cabin and she walked through the front door, she was first struck by a horrible smell. And then she saw the carnage, bodies and blood everywhere. She immediately ran back to the Seabolts to alert them as to what she had found. Either they called 911 or somebody else had called. I'm not quite clear because I've heard it described as the resort owner having made the call at around 8.05 a.m. While everybody waited for emergency personnel to arrive at the scene, one of the things Sheila pointed out was that she did not know where her mom was. Nobody could be sure if the killers were still inside the house or not, but the Seabull's teenage son, Jamie, went over there anyway to try and see if there were any more people inside that were still alive. When he peered into the window of the bedroom that Ricky, Greg, and Justin were in, 
He found them to be unharmed and sound asleep. Jamie opened the window and alerted the children that they needed to get out of the house and they needed to come with him through the window in order to prevent them from seeing what was inside the living room. Police arrived at the scene to find the bodies of Sue, John, and Dana on the living room floor. All three were deceased. Walking in through the entrance, the body closest to the front door was John's. He was lying face up. There was a bent steak knife on the ground next to him. His throat had been slit, and he had been bludgeoned about the head with a claw hammer. Laying parallel next to him was the body of his friend Dana. He was face down. He had been manually strangled and also bludgeoned with a claw hammer. Both boys had been bound with medical tape and electrical cords, and their feet, oddly, all four of them, were linked together with an electrical cord. Dana, who, like I said, was face down, had his head partially resting on top of a cushion that had fallen off the sofa. There were pools of blood in the middle of the living room, which indicated that their bodies had been moved. Across the room on the floor next to the sofa lay the body of mother of five, Sue. She was covered with a blanket, but was nude from the waist down. She was lying on her right side in a slightly fetal position. According to an article on plumasnews.com, it was said that there was evidence that she had been rearranged from a indecent position. She had been tightly gagged with her own underwear and a bandana, and those items were secured in place with electrical cords wrapped around her head. I also read in one report on the case that there had been some balled-up tape also stuffed into Sue's mouth. Her wrists and feet had also been bound with medical tape and electrical cord. She was stabbed multiple times in the neck and in the upper chest. She suffered defensive injuries on her arms, and she had also been bludgeoned with the butt end of a Daisy Model 800 Powerline pellet rifle. The pellet rifle was not found at the scene, but a portion of the butt or the stock of the rifle had broken off, and investigators were able to use that piece in order to identify the model of the rifle. An imprint of the rifle could also be seen on Sue's head. There was blood spatter all over the living room, including on the walls and on the ceiling. There were some stabbing marks made on one of the walls as if somebody was just stabbing it for a reason, out of maybe frustration or in an attempt to intimidate somebody. I really don't know what it means, to be honest. But most of the blood was contained to the living room. However, there was some blood located in other places in the home. There was blood found on the doorknobs of both bedrooms. Blood was also found on the wallpaper inside Tina's bedroom as well as some on the bedding. I believe the wallpaper was transfer stains, and some of the blood on the bedding was transfer, and I think some of them were droplets. The only blood found in relation to the boys' bedroom was on that knob on the outside of the room. 
Blood was also found on the handrail of the staircase from the back patio leading to the outside area behind the cabin. This suggested that the killers exited the home through the back, likely to avoid being seen. There was also blood found on the bottom of Sue's bare feet, as well as on the soles of the shoes belonging to one of the boys, one of the teenage boys. This suggested that at least two of them were up and moving around while somebody was already bleeding. I've heard that blood samples were taken from the crime scene. I've also heard that the blood collection process was inadequate. But I've also heard that because this was before DNA testing, it would have been little to no use to spend all of that time examining every single blood stain and analyzing the various patterns, whether they were spattered or droplets or if they were transferred. I don't think that any of that was collected, documented, or preserved. And that's unfortunate because today, a very chilling minute-by-minute story could be revealed from the manner in which that blood had been deposited. Two of the murder weapons were found on a wooden side table in the living room, one hammer and one hunting knife. I already mentioned that there was a bent steak knife found on the living room floor next to John. Based on the way this crime was carried out, investigators believed that there were two killers. They also believed that there were two hammers involved, but only one was found at the scene. I believe the hammer found on the table came from that cabin, as did the steak knife that was on the floor. I believe the killers brought the hunting knife with them and left it there, perhaps inadvertently, but it didn't matter because nobody would ever be linked to it. The killers also brought with them the medical tape that did not come from inside the house, which indicates that They knew they were going there to bind somebody. The electrical cords that were also used as bindings came from the cabin, which I believe were implements of opportunity. They were either extension cords or cords cut from various appliances. I believe the killers did not anticipate having to bind the number of people that they ended up binding. I believe the medical tape was not enough and that they were forced to improvise by using those cords. The pellet rifle was also brought to the cabin by the killers, but it was not recovered from the crime scene, with the exception of that single piece that broke off. The pellet rifle was never found. There was also a second hammer that was not found at the scene either, but I will discuss that later on as well. I know this based on Dana's injuries, It was noted by the forensic pathologist that he had been beaten with a different hammer than John. I believe that the killers only came with two weapons, one hammer and one knife. I believe that the killers were surprised by the arrival of John and Dana. And at some point, they found another knife and another hammer in the home to use because what they had wasn't enough. I do know that Sue attempted to help when the boys were being attacked and she may have been the one who introduced the additional weapons into the scene. In addition to all that, the phone lines had been cut, I believe from outside the home. There was no indication that there was any forced entry into the cabin. However, this was still a time when people didn't always lock their doors. 
it didn't necessarily mean that Sue let the killers in or that she even knew them. I believe the killers snuck in once they had peered inside the windows from outside and had cut the phone line. At one point after they entered the cabin, they took one of the phones off the hook just to ensure that nobody could call out. All of the curtains were drawn and all the lights were shut off. With the discovery of three brutal murders on what should have been a tranquil Sunday morning, amid all of this chaos and all of this horror, several hours would pass before anyone noticed that Tina Sharp was nowhere to be found. She was not amongst the dead, nor was she amongst the living. This unbelievable blunder on the part of the Plumas County Sheriff's Department the agency in charge of this homicide. Because of this, the search for Tina was devastatingly delayed. Precious hours were lost, but once law enforcement realized that they had a missing person and a possible kidnapping victim on their hands, a massive search was launched. Unfortunately, though, Tina would not be found for three years. By the way, the sheriff of Plumas County at the time was Greg Thomas. I couldn't find how long he had been sheriff at the time, but I did see something about him having just met his residency requirements to be the sheriff. The details are kind of sketchy, and it sounded kind of shady, and that's because it is. There is a lot going on here between the powers that be within Plumas County, but it's a rabbit hole that we are not going to go down but it has a lot to do with the reasons why things are the way they are today. What I do think is a very, very important detail that I wanted to share with you about Sheriff Greg Thomas is that three months after the Ketty murders, he resigned from the Plumas County Sheriff's Department. And I'll talk more about that later, but keep this man in mind. Even though... He might seem to be on the right side of the law, being that he is the sheriff and all, and he got elected. His hands aren't clean in this story. There are some cases from the past where the investigation just didn't go right. Cases like Ohio serial killer Anthony Soul, murdered pageant princess Jean-Benet Ramsey, disgraced football Hall of Famer O.J. Simpson, kidnapping and sexual assault survivor Denise Huskins, who was publicly accused by police for staging her crime. Or what about the time when former Washington, D.C. police chief Charles Moose publicly reassured the community that their, quote, children were safe when the D.C. sniper was traveling around the area, killing people with the rifle from inside his trunk. The common thread with all of these cases is that they were bungled by police. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen here as the investigation into the Ketty murders was launched. The whole case from the beginning was mishandled. I already told you that law enforcement failed to initiate a search for Tina Sharp for several hours until they finally noticed that she was missing. Justin Eason, one of the survivors that was asleep in the bedroom, had stated that he attempted to tell police that Tina was missing, but he was ignored. 
From there, the crime scene was never secured properly. People were coming in and out, a la John Bonet Ramsey. There were many more questionable things that the Plumas County Sheriff's Department did as the investigation progressed that severely hampered the case. I do have a theory that it may or may not have necessarily been the result of an inept department, but rather that it was done on purpose in order to impede and obstruct the investigation. And I'll tell you about that when I do get to my theory. When we have a killing like this, one would think that there would be a tremendous amount of screaming and loud noises, people calling out for help, those types of things going on. But this was apparently not the case in the Keddie murders. The boys in the bedroom were never awakened by any of the sounds, and many did find it confounding that the boys were left unharmed. But there is a theory about that too. Nobody in the Seabolt's cabin heard anything. It was 15 feet, 4.5 meters away. A couple that lived in another cabin nearby reported that they heard what they described as being muffled screams around 1.30 in the morning. It was muffled, but it was enough to wake them up. They said that they were concerned about the screaming. Another source reported that the couple said that they got up to take a look around, but didn't find anything, nor were they able to determine where the screams were coming from, so they went back to bed. I do have a theory as to why nobody heard any screaming, as Sue, John, and Dana were being murdered. And I also have a theory as to what the muffled screaming may have been. One of the things that the sheriffs kind of did right is that they canvassed the area and spoke to anyone that may have seen or heard anything suspicious the night of the killings. I say kind of did right because there are indications that some of what they did learn, things that were or could have been important to the case, that they learned from interviewing potential witnesses, were either overlooked or dismissed or never followed up on. And some of that not followed up on information came from Justin Eason's stepfather, Marty Smart, the neighbors over in cabin 26. He was interviewed and he gave an account of what he did and where he was the afternoon and evening of the killings or prior to the killings. He revealed some things to law enforcement that propelled him to the top of the suspect list. But I will say this, the information that Marty gave was only going to be as good as those investigating the case. He could have provided them with a videotape of himself killing these poor people, and it would not have mattered one single bit if the sheriff's department weren't ever going to do anything with it. They weren't going to watch it or follow up with it. What good is a smoking gun if you're only going to bury it at the bottom of an evidence box and allow it to collect 40 years of dust in a storage locker? Marty said that on the evenings of the murders, he and his friend Bo, who he explained was staying with him at his cabin temporarily, along with his wife Marilyn, the three of them went to the backdoor bar to have some drinks. Marty had worked at the bar as a cook, but was fired before he had gone to the VA hospital in Reno seeking treatment for PTSD. One source called Marty a chef. I think they use that term way too loosely. Making bar food, being a chef, I mean, come on. I cook rice and chicken breast for my puppy sometimes. Maybe I'm a chef too. I have just 
binge watched enough Gordon Ramsay in 2022 that I'm practically a chef. So on their way over to the bar, it was suggested that maybe Sue wanted to go with them, maybe be Bo's date, make it a foursome. But when they stopped by her cabin and asked her, she said no. So they went along, just the three of them. There's been made all this fuss about Marty and Bo seeming to have gone out of their way to attempt to stand out at the bar to make a spectacle out of themselves as a means of trying to create alibis, doing things like wearing really nice suits that night, which isn't the usual attire for a place like this that was kind of a dive bar. Complaining about the music really loudly, getting angry. They were just seeming to purposely try to draw attention to themselves. It is pointed out that they left the bar and came back later. There was another report that said that Marilyn had left the bar and went home by herself, leaving the two of them there. I'm not completely convinced that these two dipshits had enough brain power between the two of them to think that far in advance as to try and establish an alibi for themselves. I do not think that this crime was all that well planned out that far in advance. I think the motive sort of fell into place over time, but not over a long period of time. And it just sort of came together on this particular evening. And the reason I think that is because whoever was going to do this believed that Sue Sharp would be in cabin 28 with the youngest of the children only. She had the three boys there and they were having a sleepover in the bedroom. I believe that when this opportunity came up on that night, that's when the idea to commit a crime began to take shape. I don't even think an alibi was even really all that much of a forethought, but that's what some people have opined over the years, that these men were purposely emphasizing their presence in the bar because they wanted to remove themselves from the vicinity of the crime scene. Sheriff Thomas immediately believed that there was more than one suspect that was involved in these killings. So he decided to contact the California Department of Justice for their assistance with this case. I will refer to them as the DOJ from this point forward. Two investigators were sent, agents Harry Bradley and P.A. Krim. The first thing that they were asked to do was to conduct interviews with Marilyn Smart as well as with Marty and Bo for a second time. When the agents from the DOJ interviewed both Marty and Bo, it was a follow-up to their first interviews that they had had with Sheriff Thomas. And I do want to point out that they screwed this up big time from the very beginning when they decided to interview the both of them together instead of separately. In this interview, Marty told the investigators that he discovered that he was missing a claw hammer from his house. I do believe that information about the murders themselves were being kept very close to the vest. I can't say 100% for sure based on some of the things going on here with this case, but I do think that Marty bringing up the missing hammer was something that should have sent up more red flags because he should not have known that hammers were used in the killings, unless he was there, or unless he had some inside information. Marty also provided a description and a brand of the hammer that was missing, but this was not the hammer that was found at the scene of the crime. I believe Marty provided this bit of information to try and throw the focus of the investigation off of him 
because he knew that the hammer that was left there was not the hammer that he was describing. And you might want to ask yourselves right now, how would he know that? Regardless, just the fact that he brought up the hammer was suspicious. The hammer that Marty described would be found some 25 years later. At least it's believed to have been the hammer because of the proximity of where it was found to cabin 28. I will, again, talk more about that later on. The DOJ investigators believed that the way Marty was talking and the things that he was saying, that he was trying to be too helpful, that he was providing way more information that kind of seemed related to the crime, but also appeared to be an attempt to divert or steer the investigation away from himself, the hammer being one example of that. However, in the end, Marty was given a polygraph test and he apparently passed. And with that, along with the information from the two interviews with both him and Bo, as far as the Department of Justice agents and Sheriff Thomas were concerned, neither men were considered suspects any longer. All of this happened in very short order, and it wasn't too long after they were eliminated as suspects that both Marty and Bo left Keddie, California for good. So when Marilyn was interviewed by the DOJ agents. She expressed her belief that her husband Marty and his friend Bo were the ones responsible for the murders. She said that on the evening of April 11th, she did accompany the two of them to the back door bar, but left around 10 p.m. She went home. She said that around 2 in the morning, she was awakened by some commotion inside their cabin. When she went to investigate, She said she found both Marty and Bo burning something inside their wood-burning stove. She also later stated that on that same day that the bodies were discovered, she took her two boys, Justin and Cody, and moved out of the cabin. She left Marty for good, and within a few months' time, she filed for divorce. I have a couple of really big problems here with this aspect of the investigation. I have a problem with a lot of aspects of the investigation, but when it comes to the way Sheriff Thomas is handling things, I find it very troubling. First of all, Sheriff Thomas is good friends with Marty Smart. Good enough friends, in fact, to have told Marty, after he kept opening up his big mouth about the case, that he needed to hightail it out of Keddie, just get out of town and don't ever come back. Both Marty and Bo would take this advice. I'll talk more about that later on, too. I don't know if Sheriff Thomas and Marty were necessarily BFF-level friends, but it was good enough for me to believe that the sheriff was throwing all the monkey wrenches that he could find into the investigation in order to botch it up as badly as he possibly could. However, I do not think that the sheriff was doing this for Marty's benefit. I believe he was doing it for his own benefit because he was beginning to realize that the killers were staring at him right in the face and they had already messed up the whole investigation so badly, it was not only going to be unprosecutable if it ever made it to trial, but Sheriff Thomas was going to look like an inept, bumbling joke of a sheriff. A spotlight would have been put on everything that he bungled in the Keddie murder case, and I believe that Sheriff Thomas wanted to keep that from happening, no matter what it took. The second problem that I have is that the agents from the DOJ, they were not trained homicide investigators. In fact, 
They were both from the organized crimes unit. Why this happened? That's a good question. I have a theory about that, and I'll go over that. I also wonder why the California DOJ was contacted by the sheriff instead of the FBI when there is also a missing child, likely a kidnapping, that has also occurred in this crime. That falls under their jurisdiction, and for the FBI to become involved, there does not have to be interstate travel with the kidnapping victim, especially when the missing child is very young, whatever it is to be considered quote-unquote, the tender years. And I do have a theory about that, too. So Justin Eason, Marilyn's son and Marty's stepson, at the age of 12, was the oldest person to walk out of cabin 28 on the morning of April 12, 1981, alive. When he was initially spoken to by the Plumas County Sheriff's investigators, He indicated that he was asleep during the time that the murders took place. He stated that both 10-year-old Ricky and 5-year-old Greg also slept through the brutal attacks as well. He said that none of them heard anything. But as the days and weeks passed, Justin's story began to change in pretty big ways. Justin was also given a subsequent interview. I don't know who conducted this interview, nor do I know if they brought in an interviewer with a specialization in interviewing children, though I highly doubt it. But in the interview, Justin described having a dream, that this dream took place on a boat, and that as he stood on this boat, he looked on as John and Dana were engaged in a fight with a strange man. Justin said this man had shoulder-length dark hair, a mustache, and black-rimmed glasses. He stated that this man was carrying a hammer. Then he said he saw the man throw John overboard, followed by Dana, who Justin described as being pretty drunk. The next thing Justin described in the interviews was seeing a body covered with a sheet lying on the bow of the boat. He said that he walked over to the body, lifted the sheet, and saw that it was Sue Sharp. He described her having knife cuts in her chest and that he tried to help stop the bleeding by holding a rag to put pressure on the wound, but he ended up tossing that rag overboard. In Justin's account, there are things that are shockingly accurate, things that Justin could not have known if he managed to sleep through the whole thing. And remember, he and the other two boys were removed from the cabin with the help of teenage neighbor Jamie Seabolt. He had helped them climb through the window to prevent them from having to go through the living room. So there is no occasion that Justin would have ever seen any of what he described that happened to be accurate. That a strange man was fighting with John and Dana. That he was holding a claw hammer in his hand, that Sue was covered with a sheet, or that she had stab wounds to her chest. All of those things were almost perfectly precise details of the crime scene. Of course, some of the details that Justin provided cannot possibly be what actually happened, like all of this having taken place on a boat. The one thing I wonder about is whether or not 
Justin really went over to Sue's body, if he lifted the sheet, I mean, she was covered with a blanket, but he said sheet. And if he took a look at her and observed the stab wounds to her chest, Justin would have had the opportunity. He would have had several hours, in fact, in the cabin with the bodies to have done that after the killers left. He could have. It was surmised that the reason Justin described this as a dream having taken place on a boat is because at some point during his time at the cabin that evening, they all watched an episode of The Love Boat. In a follow-up interview, in a source that I read, it stated that Justin was subjected to a polygraph test. I'm not sure if this is accurate. I'll discuss this further in a moment. But curious, I looked up to see if there was a minimum age requirement for being polygraphed. And according to polygraphexaminer.com there is no minimum age requirement however a polygraph does require a certain level of language and abstract concept comprehension in order for the examination to be considered effective and successful and because of this intrinsic barrier it eliminates most children under the age of 12 from being tested and like all other polygraph tests the results are not admissible as evidence in court when it comes to custody battles or in the case of when a child commits a crime. And remember at this time, Justin was 12, so he would have been able to have been polygraphed. I don't think that he was though. I don't believe Justin was given a polygraph because in other sources that I've reviewed, it stated that once Justin brought up having the dream on the boat, he was placed under hypnosis and questioned. In fact, I've seen it more frequently reported that follow-up interviews were given under hypnosis and not with a polygraph. It actually doesn't really make sense to me that he would be given a polygraph because I would think that they weren't necessarily looking for lies, but rather looking for consistency. It's simple. Either he was awake or he was asleep. If Justin described anything that he should not have knowledge of and he's correct, then clearly he wasn't asleep. There are plenty of reasons why Justin would at first tell investigators that he was asleep. It might have been out of fear or confusion, or perhaps he really thought that he might have been dreaming. I mean, how many times have we heard adults say when stumbling upon something shocking that it felt surreal or it felt like a nightmare that they couldn't wake up from? Is a 12-year-old going to say, it felt surreal? Or is a 12-year-old more likely to say, I had this dream? Unless the kid is an overachieving little smarty pants, he's probably not going to use the word surreal. So I believe Justin was placed under hypnosis because I don't think a polygraph was what they needed to do in this situation. I believe Justin was hypnotized twice. During those sessions, he revealed that he witnessed the murders. He said that he was woken up by a noise, that he got out of bed. He cracked the bedroom door open and peered into the living room. He saw Sue Sharp laying on the living room sofa, and there were two men standing near her in the living room. He described one of the men wearing black, dark sunglasses. Other sources have said that Justin described both men wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses. It's been reported that Justin described one of the men as having brown hair 
and wearing military-style boots, and the other man had black hair. He described one of them as having short hair with a mustache, and the other guy with longer hair and was clean-shaven. Justin said that the men attacked Sue, but while they were doing so, they were interrupted when John and Dana arrived home. He said they entered the cabin through the front door and were immediately confronted and attacked by the men. A fight for their lives ensued, and it was a fight that John and Dana would sadly lose. The teens were no match for the killers, and they were overtaken. Justin said that Dana had attempted to flee towards the kitchen and tried to escape through the back door. The man with the brown hair struck him in the head with a hammer, while the man with the black hair carried on attacking John. And this whole thing with Dana trying to escape through the kitchen door, it seems to match up with the evidence at the scene, because right next to the kitchen door was the sofa, and one of the cushions had fallen off the sofa and onto the floor, and in the end, Dana, who ended up face down, would have part of his head resting on that sofa cushion. So I could see the struggle to get through the kitchen door, but him being brought back in and attacked, and that whole incident caused that sofa cushion to get knocked down. Justin also said that he saw Sue attempt to help her son, but was unable to. Justin said he tried staying hidden behind the bedroom door, but continued to watch the attack. The two men, once they had John and Dana on the ground, they tied them up. Justin said he saw Tina going towards the living room holding her blanket. The men had a hold of her and took her out the back door while she attempted to yell out for help. Now, hypnosis is no longer used as an investigative tool like it once was. It's very rare now and almost never used with court rulings having come down that deemed hypnotically induced testimony as inadmissible as it is considered to be a similar quasi-scientific process like a polygraph. However, I think Justin witnessed the murders and so did the investigators who interviewed him. The next step was for them to enlist the services of a sketch artist that would work with Justin in order to develop some composite drawings of the men that he saw in the living room that night. I know that composite drawings were pretty bad in past decades, but there were some that were relatively good and were effective in identifying suspects. Others looked like they were drawn by a seven-year-old. I'm not going to say the composite drawings in this case were the worst that I've ever seen, but they're pretty bad. And the problem I have with it in this case is that the artist that was brought in was not a trained forensic sketch artist. In fact, he had very little artistic ability, if any at all, based on what was produced from Justin's descriptions. His name was Harlan Embry, and he was more of a volunteer at the Plumas County Sheriff's Department, and very little more than that, and he was nowhere near qualified to be called in to do what they had him do. Both the Department of Justice and the FBI 
had specially trained forensic artists available, some of the top artists in the country, yet the sheriff chose an amateur. It's been speculated that this was done on purpose in order to prevent anyone from being able to identify the killers. That is a pretty bold statement and a bold accusation to make. And I tend to agree with it, especially if they had more qualified people on hand to do the composite sketches. I'll explain more about my thoughts on this later. I know I keep saying that, but I'll have a theory dump at the end of this episode that will cover everything that I said that I would come back to, I promise. I just think you have to hear all of the ideas and thoughts that I have all at the same time in order for it to sink in that somebody or somebodies are acting kind of janky about this murder case. The local community were not happy with the way the DOJ and the agents that they sent were conducting the investigation. They were accused of poor police work. They ignored important information. They did not do any follow-ups from the things that they found out from their interviews with Marty and Bo, and they didn't do anything to verify any of the details that they were given. They dismissed evidence, and they dismissed both men as suspects. It's my belief that Sheriff Greg Thomas had a hand in the way the DOJ investigated this case. It's probably one of my most improbable theories because it would mean that there was collusion between the sheriff and the agents, which I don't always believe in, but in this case, I think there might be something to that, and I needed to explore it. There were discrepancies in the things that Marty and Bo had said in their various interviews with law enforcement, things that nobody ever attempted to clarify or fact check. When agents Krim and Bradley first interviewed Bo, he told them that he was a police officer with the Chicago PD for 18 years but he was forced into an early retirement when he was shot in the line of duty. If anyone had done their due diligence, it would have been very easy to figure out that Bo was never a police officer, not in Chicago, not in any police department in the country, but nobody ever followed up. That is a huge thing to lie about. Bo also lied when he told the agents that he had been living in Keddie for a month. The truth was he had only been there for 10 days. Bo also said that he was Marilyn's uncle, also not true. Bo said that Marilyn was awake when they got home from the bar the evening of the murders. Marilyn said that she was asleep and was awakened by them making noises when they got home. Bo stated that he never met Sue Sharp. This also contradicted Marilyn's statement that they had stopped in to see if she wanted to go with him to the bar. It was meant to be kind of a date for Bo, but she said no. So... He lied about ever having met her. As for Marty, he made one big, huge slip up in one of his interviews that the agents seemed to just not notice or they chose not to notice. Marty stated in an interview that his stepson, Justin, may have witnessed something when the murders were happening without me detecting him. Either the agents didn't pick up on it or they didn't get the gravity of that statement, or they just weren't paying attention. When Marty had brought up the hammers used in the killings, he mentioned that the hammer he owned was missing. But because the agents and Sheriff Thomas dropped both him and Bo as suspects in the murder, they never followed up on the statement about the hammer. 
And like I said, once they were cleared as suspects, and because Marty was pretty good friends with Sheriff Thomas, he advised Marty to get out of the area and have Bo to do the same. Marty went on to go and stay with a friend for a short time, and then he ended up back at the VA hospital for a while in Reno. I think it was probably more about trying to win Marilyn back as opposed to working on himself and his own mental health issues. Marty stayed in Nevada for a while. He worked there, but ended up in Portland, Oregon, where he died on May 26, 2000, at the age of 51, of complications related to cancer. Bo Bouvide died November 1, 1988, at the age of 57, in Chicago, Illinois. So, both of the prime suspects in this case are gone. Another thing I need to mention to you is the love letter. Marty wrote a letter to Marilyn on April 27, 1981 and mailed it to her. This was 15 days after the murders. Almost every single YouTube video and podcast that I have listened to about this case have shared only one line from this letter. I'm going to share the whole thing. It's not that long, but reading only one line from it, I feel like it does not give it context. So let me tell you what his letter said. Dear Marilyn, First off, you know that I haven't tried to hurt you with my letters. I'm writing this after our phone call, Monday, 427. Marilyn, there's two things I want you to know. The first is that I love you, and I don't care what has happened. Now is the time to start over. Call now. You don't know how much I've suffered before I met you. I asked God to send me someone who would care for me. I thought he sent you. I remember the hour, the words that were said. I said your phone number a thousand times that night. I've given you my heart, all of it. Please try and think back. What do you think I've paid for you? For three years, I've heard about your kids. Don't get me wrong, I love them too. Now I'll ask, what about mine? Don't you think I love them? Honey, I gave up four of the most precious things in my life. For what? For you. The answer is simple. Now I will ask you, why should I love your kids more than mine? I've tried. That's more than you can say. I don't think you ever loved me, much less my kids, and yet you expect this from me, and I've given it to you. I've paid the price for your love, and now that I have bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great. What else do you want? I've paid the price. I've given my flesh and blood for you. I'll gladly pay your bills. Just send them in. You know that I love you more than my own kids. Can you say that? I know you have given up a lot to be with me. I don't think you know what I've paid. Yes, I'm jealous. For the price I've paid, I should be. You can't seem to understand how bad you have hurt me. I'm crawling back. Take me. I have paid for your love. 
please give it back at least once. If you don't, you know you've stolen my heart and given it to the street. I love you. Think about what I've given up for you. Call me. Please don't wait until it's too late. I've given it all. What else do you want? The line that gets referred to by just about every outlet that covers this case is this. I've paid the price for your love, and now that I have bought it with four people's lives, you tell me that we are through. Great. What else do you want? That sounds pretty self-incriminating. I've paid the price for your love, and now that I have bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. It appears as if he's telling Marilyn that he murdered four people in order to be with her. And this lends to the theory as to why these murders happened in the first place. Marty believed Sue was meddling in his relationship with Marilyn. Marilyn confided in Sue that Marty was abusive. Sue had just left her own abusive husband almost two years before the murders. She packed up her kids and moved across the country to California. It's believed that Sue was trying to encourage Marilyn to do the same, to divorce Marty and get her children away from this toxic environment, and that angered Marty. People who knew him have said that he hated Sue, and he hated her oldest son John too because John had an attitude towards him. So Marty had this plan to get rid of Sue, and Bo kind of sort of just went along with him. Perhaps he didn't like her either after he had asked her to go to the bar and she turned him down. Perhaps Bo didn't need much of a motive. He was a convicted burglar. He could have just maybe wanted to tag along to see what he could steal. Marty carried out the murders with the hopes of clearing the way for him and Marilyn to work on their marriage without Sue interfering. That's the theory, and to me, it sounds plausible. When you isolate that one statement from his letter, it's very incriminating. But when you put it back into the context of the letter, it isn't so incriminating anymore. Maybe. In the lines of the letter before the statement about paying the price with four lives, Marty talked about her kids and his kids. He's basically saying that he sacrificed his relationship with his children in order to be with Marilyn and to take care of her children. He wrote, For three years, I've heard about your kids. Don't get me wrong, I love them too. Now I'll ask, what about mine? Don't you think I love them? Honey, I gave up four of the most precious things in my life. For what? For you. Marty's talking to Marilyn about his four children when he told her he gave up the four most precious things in his life. A few lines later, he made the statement, I've paid the price for your love, and now that I have bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great, what else do you want? So, here's the question. When he says he's paid with four people's lives to be with her, is he talking about his children? Or the murder victims. I went back and forth on this, and while I'm still not sure, when I picked apart 
the way he worded everything, I think he might be referring to the murder victims when he said that he bought her love with four people's lives. And I'll explain that. I do want to say, though, when I saw the whole letter versus what I had just listened to, which was only that one line, I was pretty shocked that this line had been cherry-picked out of the whole letter to make it seem much more incriminating than it might actually be because he has four kids. Those could be the four lives that he's talking about. So when Marty makes that incriminating statement, to me, it sounds like an action that he had just recently made. He abandoned his four children at least three years prior to this. Three years had passed since he walked out on his own kids to go and be with Marilyn and her two kids instead. But when he talked about paying the price with four lives, he stated, I've paid the price for your love and now that I have bought it with four people's lives, you are telling me we are through. It's that and now that gets to me. He didn't just now leave his children. That was a while back. To me, it seems like he's talking about paying the price as if it was something that he just did, not something that happened more than three years earlier. And I also have to ask this. If you are talking about walking out on your wife and kids to go and be with someone else and their kids, is it normal to refer to that decision as it costing your children's lives? The quote again, and now that I have bought your love with four people's lives. Is that the way a person would discuss walking out on their family to be with a different family? Maybe Marty is being melodramatic, but I'm leaning towards this being a reference to the murders. When we talk about people's lives in terms of cost, that usually involves death. For example, his decision to drive drunk cost six lives. He bought himself a life sentence in prison with those six lives. When I say it like that, you know that I'm talking about six people who died. I also think that Marty chose that wording to try to be vague and specific at the same time, but also to not overtly confess to killing Sue John, Tina, and Dana. If he was referencing the murders, I don't know where he would get the idea that it would woo Marilyn back to him. Like, hey, you know those four murders? That was me. All me. I did that for you. Okay? Love ya. He's so stupid if that's what he was thinking because Marilyn didn't leave him on any old rando day. She left him the day the bodies were discovered. I think that's a pretty good hint that she believed him to be the killer and she was out of there. Anyway, I do think that Marty was referencing the murders, but I don't think it's fair to take that one statement and share it without putting context around it. Because Marty also just talked about giving up the four most precious things in his life. But then again, he did follow that up towards the end by saying he loved Marilyn more than he loved his kids. And that right there officially makes him a certified grade A asshat. And that goes for any dads out there 
who think that you're going to win a woman over by abandoning your children for her. And that goes for moms, too. But hey, at least Marty didn't kill his kids. I mean, there's that, right? Well, Marilyn has stated that she has no memory of this letter. It was mailed to her, it had a stamp on it, and it was turned over to law enforcement. The Ketty murder case was assigned to a cold case investigator in 2013, and the letter was in evidence. I believe DNA testing was conducted on the stamp and on the envelope. I did see a YouTube video that did say the DNA on the envelope matched Marty's, but I wasn't able to find any written articles about it online. And full disclosure, I'm so stupid, but I can't remember which video I saw the bit about the DNA testing on the envelope either. But I just watched so much stuff and listened and read so many things about this over this last week that it's all just jumbled up and that's probably why this podcast is sounding kind of jumbled up. However, I'm not all that concerned about the DNA on the envelope because taking everything else into account, there is not really a dispute about whether or not he was the author of the letter. I know that if this were going to trial, they would want to have the DNA evidence linking Marty to the letter. But Marty's dead anyway, so it's kind of a moot point. Oh, and when the letter was turned over to law enforcement, they tucked it away along with all the other evidence in the case, and they never followed up on the seemingly incriminating words contained in that letter. It was around the same time that Marty wrote that love letter that he was seeing a therapist at the VA hospital. And in speaking to his therapist, Marty confessed to the killings in part. He admitted in a therapy session that he had murdered Sue and Tina, but he did not confess to killing John and Dana. I don't know why. I guess he didn't want his therapist to think that he was that batshit crazy to kill four people. I mean, two's okay, but four, that's just like extra. He said it was Sue's fault for the breakdown of his marriage to Marilyn and Tina was killed because she was a witness to the murder. He also told his therapist that he knew how to outsmart a polygraph. Even though there are confidentiality issues that arise regarding what patients say to their therapist when it comes to confessing to murders in the past, Marty's therapist went ahead and broke that confidentiality rule and reported the confession to police. But nothing was ever done because the confession was considered to be hearsay. And technically, that's the way it should be, like it or not. But it is another bullet point under the list of reasons why I think Marty killed Sue, John, Tina, and Dana. And keeping with the timeline here, I know it's kind of discombobulated and all over the place, but three months after the killings in July of 1981, just a few months after this letter was turned over to police, Sheriff Greg Thomas resigned. I'll tell you where he went when I get to my theories. For three years, investigators were no closer to solving the Ketty murders than they were the day it happened. There was no involvement on the case, nor were there any developments, until April of 1984. A man who was walking in the woods near Feather Falls in Butte County, California, was collecting recyclables 
when he discovered a human skull. He alerted police, and later on, after the area was searched, a portion of a mandible was also found. This area was about two hours south of Ketty. There are some news sources that have reported that the remains were found three years to the day of the murders. This is not true. The remains were found on April 22, 1984, which is 11 days after the third anniversary. I think it was erroneously stated to have been three years to the day in order to kind of sensationalize the case. Because if a person just so happened to find the skull on that date, then well, they must have a connection to the case, or they must be involved, or they could have been the killer himself because that's just too much of a coincidence. But no, the person who found the skull was not the killer making a third year anniversary stroll through the woods in search of the skull. I don't even think it would be possible for the killer to go out there one day and manage to find it immediately, like to be honest. Things like skeletal remains seem to be found more often randomly as opposed to during a large-scale boots-on-the-ground search. Now, another crucial piece of evidence came up shortly after the discovery of the human remains had been reported in the news. Another piece of crucial evidence that was dismissed tucked away into storage and never followed up on. A 911 call was made where the caller suggested that police should consider looking into whether or not the skull was linked to the Keddie murders from three years earlier. Once the dental records were matched up to the mandible, it was confirmed that those remains belonged to Tina Sharp. The normal course of action for investigators would have been to look into the 911 call, see where it originated from, listen to the voice, find out if anyone could identify who may have been making that phone call at that time, or even try to compare it to the suspects, because I know they have a recording of at least Bo Bobaday's voice. So it was very clear to everyone that this 911 caller was either the killer or was involved with the killings. But did any of that follow-up investigation ever happen? Nope. The cassette tape was placed into an evidence envelope and tucked into an evidence box labeled to be ignored. Nobody knew of the existence of this 911 tape until the case was reopened in 2013 and new cold case investigators were assigned to it. The then Sheriff of Plumas County, Greg Hagwood, assigned the Ketty murder cold case to retired special investigator Mike Gamberg. He was a deputy with Plumas County prior to the killings, but he was fired by Sheriff Thomas two weeks before the killings. In the past, this has led to theories that Investigator Gamberg was possibly involved with the killings or was the killer himself. I took a quick look around the internet to see what exactly happened back then. But because I'm just not convinced that Mike Gamberg was involved, I didn't want to go too far into the weeds with it because this whole thing between Thomas and Gamberg is like a dumpster fire on the internet. 
people have taken sides. The two of them, Gamberg and Thomas, they blame each other for allowing politics to get in the way of solving this case and doing their jobs. Things like political rivalries, political aspirations, being elected. So as it stands, there are these two sides to the Keddy murder case. Team Marty and Bo did it, and Team Mike Gamberg had something to do with it. Remember, Sheriff Thomas was friends with Marty. Well, on the flip side of that, Mike Gamberg was close friends with Sue and her kids. He was their karate instructor. So I just don't think he'd be involved in their killings because of that. I mean, I can't say that for sure. It's just a hunch. But the bitterness between the two sides, between these two men, is strong. However, for me, I just feel the case against Marty and Bo is stronger. And honestly, I don't think Mike Gamberg is any more of a stand-up guy than Sheriff Thomas, based on his having been fired from the Sheriff's Department more than once for various shady reasons. There is a lot of bad blood between these two men, and I think it cost them the solving of this case. Gamberg's theory is that Sheriff Thomas and the investigators with the DOJ were involved in a drug trafficking ring and that Marty and Bo were in collusion with them. So because of that, law enforcement in the case did not want Marty and Bo to be implicated in the murders. Mike Gamberg was fired from the Plumas County Sheriff's Department, but Sheriff Thomas resigned three months after the murders. And he went to go to work at the Department of Justice. Well, what do you know? Dreamers, I think everybody's hands in this story are dirty. After the murders, Cabin 28 was repaired, cleaned up, and made available once again as a rental. But it was another two years before anyone lived there again, and those that did stayed for relatively short periods of time. The cabins in the resort were starting to fall apart. Actually, they had been for quite some time. In the pictures of the Cabin 28 that were taken around the time of the murders, it looks pretty run down. The restaurant had shuttered their doors, as did the local bar, and people just began moving out of each cabin one at a time. Then sometime in the 90s, the water source for the resort was found to be contaminated, which then led to most of the cabins being boarded up and condemned, the cabin 28 being one of them. By then, cabin 28 hadn't been much more than a morbid tourist attraction. There's also all that stuff about hauntings and ghosts and whatever, but I ain't afraid of no ghosts because I don't believe in them. And in 2004, Cabin 28 was finally raised to the ground, which to me was 23 years too late. As of now, the Keddy case is actively being investigated as far as I know, but whatever they are learning about the case using DNA technology and advancements in science and forensics, they are keeping tight-lipped about it. In 2013, Mike Gamberg discovered that 911 tape 
It was a tape he never knew even existed. He listened to the audio clips of Bo Bubide, and he believes that the voice could be his. The sound quality of the 911 tape is pretty bad. I will post a link to it on social media when this episode goes live. In 2016, a rusted hammer was discovered in a pond that was in close proximity to where the murders took place. That hammer matched the description and the brand of the hammer that Marty had described that he was missing from his house 35 years earlier. Sheriff Hagwood described the location of this hammer as being indicative of someone depositing it there on purpose. This was not a place where somebody would have accidentally forgotten it or set it down while they were working and lost it. In 2018, Mike Gamberg announced that there was DNA found on a piece of tape that was from the crime scene inside the cabin. It was on the ground next to Sue's body, and Gamberg said that the DNA matches somebody who is currently still alive. At least they were in 2018. In all, Gamberg has stated that he has identified six individuals who may have been involved in the crime or the cover-up, or the disposal of evidence. And all of this gives Sheila Sharp hopes that someday the murders of her mom, her sister, her brother, and his friend may one day be solved. Sheila does appear in documentaries and shows about this case, as she has not stopped seeking justice in the 41 years since her family was destroyed. Most people believe Marty Smart and Bo Boubidet were the killers, though they were never publicly named as suspects. The early media attention on the case focused heavily on who it was that gave John and Dana a ride home from Quincy the night of the killings, because it was right after they were dropped off that they walked into the house and walked into their deaths. In fact, Sheriff Hagwood believed that because the media attention was so focused on the hitchhiking and the person who gave them a ride because it was not uncommon for a hitchhiking situation to go really, really bad. And because of the focus on the hitchhiking, it inhibited the investigation into the case, along with everything else that was done wrong that inhibited the investigation. He believes that if the media had focused on other leads and other suspects, things may have gone very differently. Sheriff Hagwood did say that they were able to track down the person who picked up John and Dana, and they have been interviewed and cleared of having any involvement, though their identity was never released. But that person who did give John and Dana that old school rideshare said that they picked them up, but dropped them off at the entrance of the resort, that they never drove any further onto the property that Dana and John walked the rest of the way to their cabin, and that the reason why they didn't come forward when the media was trying to hunt them down is because they were afraid of being implicated in the murders, and that makes total sense. So they kept quiet until some 30 or more years later. So now I'm finally getting to my theory. I believe Martin Smart and John Boubidet were the ones responsible for the murders of 35-year-old Sue Sharp, 
15-year-old John Sharp, 12-year-old Tina Sharp, and 17-year-old Dana Wingate. And the theory that I came up with is not only based on the various pieces of circumstantial evidence, criminal history of the suspects, alleged confessions, you know, all of the points that we went over through this episode, but I also based my theory on the timing of when everything happened, when everybody arrived at cabin 28, where everybody was located inside of this cabin, the locations of the two bedrooms, the way that they were situated, the people that were in those bedrooms when the killings took place, the blood evidence and the various weapons and bindings that were used. The only thing I didn't have a solid theory on is the time of night when everything took place. I believe both Marty and Bo were upset at Sue Sharp that night. On varying levels, Marty probably more so than Bo. I think Marty was upset because Sue was interfering in his relationship with his wife by encouraging her to leave him. Remember, Sue had just left an abusive relationship not even two years earlier. Her husband, her ex-husband, James Sharp, was not only abusive to her, but he was allegedly sexually abusing both of his daughters, Sheila and Tina. Not only did Sue find the strength to leave, she packed up all five of her kids and literally moved clear across the country from her abuser, from Connecticut to California. You can't get any further than that. I think that Marty's wife, Marilyn, admired Sue for her strength and determination. She made it out. She made her kids her number one priority. Sue was going to school and getting some job training so that she can have some marketable skills. Since she spent most of her adult life having and raising children, I think Sue showed Marilyn that there is hope after divorce that you don't have to settle for one abusive asshole after another. And I think Martin was not only mad at Sue for putting all of those ideas in his wife's head about being an independent, strong, single woman and mother, but I think he also resented Sue because he knew that he could never have a smart, strong, independent, beautiful woman like her. That women like Sue were way out of his league. He probably knew Marilyn was out of his league, too. The problem for him was Marilyn was on her way to realizing that. I think she settled way, way low just to have someone to try and support her and to be a stepdad to her kids. And eventually she realized that she was way wrong. She doesn't need him. She never did. She never would. I didn't bring it up in the main body of the episode, but it was rumored that Marty may have been having an affair with Sue. I don't believe for a minute that Sue would have an affair with him. She already knew that she and her kids deserved better or nothing at all. Sue Sharp was a threat to Marty. And I also believe that there is a strong possibility that Marty did try to make a move on Sue and she rejected him which likely would have done nothing but make him even angrier at her. And if for some reason Marilyn did think that Marty was having an affair with Sue, I believe he probably fed into it and wanted her to believe it, just to hurt her and to make her jealous. As for Bo, 
I think he tried to hit Sue up too. Probably very quickly considering he was only there in Ketty for all of 10 days by the time the murders took place. According to Marilyn, Bo asked Sue out and she turned him down. Is that enough of a motive for somebody to go and do what those two men allegedly did in Cabin 28 that night? Probably not. Even though Bo had this criminal history, it seemed like it was mostly robbery and drug-related stuff, along with some alleged ties to the Chicago Mafia. But that being said, I can see a conversation between these two men taking place earlier that day of the killings and into the evening, discussing Sue and how she's gotten on both of their nerves, but mostly Marty's. Marty may have known that John and Dana, but mainly John, since he was the oldest male living in the home, had spent the night away from the cabin the evening before. John and Dana had spent the night of April 10th, 1981 in Quincy. These neighbors in the Keddy Resort seem to socialize a lot, as do their children. So Marty likely had an idea of what was going on with his kids and Sue's kids just by virtue of being married to Marilyn, who is good friends with Sue. As parents, you just talk about that stuff. Hey, you know, Sue's boy John is spending the night with his friend in Quincy at his uncle's house. So Justin's going to go over there and have a sleepover at their cabin. And the girls, Tina and Sheila, they're going to have a sleepover at the Seabolds. So Sue would probably love having Justin over to keep her boys company just so she could enjoy the evening to herself for a change. Remember, these people's cabins are all in a row or in very close proximity to one another. Marilyn and Marty were in cabin 26, the Seabolts were in cabin 27, and Sue and her children were in cabin 28. Their kids were all friends with one another. April 11th and 12th were a Saturday and a Sunday. It was the weekend. Everybody was having sleepovers. So now Marty has this information that his stepson, Justin, is going to be asleep with Sue's boys in their bedroom. He also knows that her oldest son, John, is going to be gone for the night in Quincy. At least he thinks he's going to be. And Marty knows that Sue's girls are going to be having a sleepover at the Seabolts. Again, at least he thinks they are. So putting it all together in his head, Marty and Bo figured that Sue is going to be home alone with three of the youngest children. His boy, 12-year-old Justin, and her two boys, 10-year-old Rick and 5-year-old Greg. Marty knows that once they're asleep, Sue's going to be up in her living room. She's going to be enjoying a smoke or two. She's going to be watching whatever she wants to watch on TV because all five of her kids are out of her hair for the night. Marty probably has a good idea as to what he can get away with once the kids have gone to bed. And yeah, Kids can be deep sleepers, especially if they spent the whole day and evening together playing with their friends. Once their heads hit their pillows, they'll be out like a light. So imagine Marty and Bo having this conversation. Let's go rob her. Let's go rape her. Who the hell does she think she is, sticking her nose where it doesn't belong, 
thinking she's too good for us. And according to Marilyn, the two of them, Marty and Bo, had been at the local bar that night. They could have had a few beers. They could have kept on drinking. And as they kept going, they're both getting more and more annoyed with Sue. Did they want to kill her? I don't know if that was in the plans, but I do think that they wanted to do something to harm her in order to retaliate against her for the things that she did to them. I think that both of them, I believe they fed off of each other's depravity. And the more they talked about it, the more they thought about it, the better it sounded to just go in there and teach Sue a lesson, issue her a warning to just mind her own business. I think the plan included sexually assaulting and robbing her. Like I said, I don't know if they wanted to kill her. The fact that they brought a hammer and a knife and a roll of medical tape doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to use those items to murder her, but instead they brought them to threaten and to control her. I believe that each of them had one weapon. One of them had the hammer and the other one had the knife. It wasn't a kitchen knife that they had with them. It was more of like a hunting knife. It had a thick blade and a guard to keep you from cutting yourself when you stab. They brought the medical tape, obviously, to bind Sue. And remember, Sue had also been beaten with the butt of a pellet rifle. They also brought that with them, and I believe they did so to make it look like they had a serious weapon with them. I mean, a pellet rifle can be dangerous. I don't know if they had plastic ammunition, like an airsoft gun, or if it was like a BB gun. But it's not the most lethal rifle in the world, though it can appear to be a rifle that shoots larger, more fatal ammunition. So these two go over to Sue's cabin. They don't need to drive there. They're neighbors. They can walk. And because there's no forced entry, and it was still back in the days when people didn't lock their doors, I believe they snuck around the side of the house, and in doing so, they peeked in the windows to try to get an idea of what the situation was inside to see if Sue was really by herself and the kids were in bed. There was a pack of cigarettes on the living room sofa right on the cushion, which would have been to Sue's left if she was sitting there. There was an ashtray with an unsmoked cigarette sitting in it on the arm of the sofa, which would have been to Sue's right. There was a rear entrance to the house. Outside that rear entrance, there was a screened patio with a door that led into the kitchen. There's a wall that divides the kitchen from the living room. Open concept was not a thing back then. The sofa was up against this big wall that divided the living room and the kitchen. If Sue were to be sitting on that sofa, that door that led from the kitchen into the living room would have been to her right. It would have been very easy for the two of them to sneak in to the house through the kitchen and for Sue to never notice until it was too late. I studied the layout of the cabin for a long time so I could get a real understanding of where everybody was at, including where the bedrooms were located and their proximity to the living room. 
If Marty and Bo were entering into the living room from the kitchen, then the bedrooms would be to the left side of the house, and Sue would be to their right on the sofa. To their left, there would be an entrance to the hallway, just about the size of a door jamb. If you were standing there, facing the hallway, standing in that door jamb, then you would be standing perpendicular to the way the hallway ran. To the left end of the hall was Sue's bedroom that she shared with Tina. To the right end of the hall was what looks to me to be like the master bedroom that the three boys shared, John, Rick, and Greg. They had bunk beds and a sleeping cot in there. And the sofa in the living room had a fold-out bed in it, and that's where I'm assuming that Sheila slept. The bathroom is in between the two bedrooms in the middle of the hallway, but more to the left. It's important to remember that neither one of these bedroom doors, when they are open, they do not open with a direct view into the living room. From the boys' room, the door is facing the hallway. When you open it, you would have to step out and immediately to the left is the living room. It doesn't open directly into the living room. It opens up into the hallway. Sue and Tina's bedroom is even further down the hall from the living room. When that door is open, you would have to leave the room completely and take several steps down the hall and look to the right to peer into the living room. Where with the boys' room, you'd only have to take a single step to see out to the living room. The two bedrooms' doors, they face one another. Standing in the doorways of the bedrooms, you would be face-to-face across the hallway. I will post the layout of the house so that you can see. So Marty and Bo, they've made entry into cabin 28. They could have looked in from the window to see that Sue was in the living room. When they were in the kitchen, they could have further assessed that she was indeed alone and the kids were asleep in the bedrooms. And this is when I believe they surprised Sue. She may not have screamed out right away when she recognized who was in her cabin, but I believe that they quickly overtook her and they threatened her with their weapons and they could have threatened to harm the children if she made a sound. And from there, I believe they had closed the curtains, they turned out the lights, and either one or both of them proceeded to remove Sue's underwear. I believe she was wearing a nightgown or a robe or maybe both. They stuffed her underwear into her mouth along with a bandana. And I also read that she had a ball of rolled up tape shoved into her mouth as well. And all of these things were secured in place with an electrical cord that they wrapped around her head. They bound her hands and I believe they were getting ready to rape her. At this point, I believe it is possible that some of the commotion caused Justin and or Tina to be alerted to something going on in the living room and that Rick and Greg were already asleep and never noticed. I think that both Tina and Justin at some point opened their bedroom doors, at least a crack, to try to get an idea of what was happening. I don't know when, but I think that both of them observed something happening to Sue. Because Justin's door was closer to the entrance of the living room of the hallway, he may have gotten more of a look than Tina did, whose bedroom was at the opposite end of the hall 
and further down past the bathroom. But I think the both of them became aware that there were two men doing something to suit in the living room and they were too scared to advance any further. They were too scared to say anything. And perhaps Justin did not want to wake up Rick and Greg, especially Greg being only five because it is likely he would cry. So Justin had to make sure that they stayed asleep. So I believe that both Tina and Justin retreated back into their bedrooms. But if Justin's account under hypnosis is accurate, he may have kept peeking to see what was going on in the living room, or he could have made assumptions as to what was happening based on what he was hearing. I think Tina shut her door quietly, held tightly to her blanket, and stayed as quiet as she could in her bedroom. I believe during the attack, before Marty or Bo had a chance to sexually assault Sue, that they were interrupted by John and Dana arriving home, and either a fight ensued, or the pellet gun was used to hold them at bay while they retrieved more weapons and things to bind them with. And I say that I believe the sexual assault was interrupted before it happened, because the autopsy report revealed that there was no evidence of a sexual assault. At some point, Marty and Bo were able to obtain a second hammer from the house and a steak knife and some electrical cords, and they proceeded to bind Dana and John, but I believe they tried to keep fighting back. The medical tape that was used to attempt to bind Dana's feet was broken, so they ended up having to tie both of their feet together using a single electrical cord because maybe they were running out or the other cords weren't long enough. In the meantime, the children are still in the bedrooms. The phone line had been cut. I think this is something that's done or can be done on the outside of the house. And the phone was taken off the hook elsewhere inside the cabin, maybe in the kitchen or in the living room. So anybody else with access to a phone anywhere else in the cabin would have been unable to dial out. The kids would not have been able to call 911. And I don't think either one of them had the wherewithal to escape out a window to get help from a neighbor, or they were just too terrified to try. This whole scenario is like a terrifying nightmare. Eventually, the fight, the attack, it turned into a frenzy. Sue was bludgeoned with a rifle and stabbed in the neck and chest several times. John was bludgeoned with a claw hammer and his throat was slit. Dana was also bludgeoned with a claw hammer, but a different one than the one that John was bludgeoned with. And Dana was also manually strangled. There may have been a moment of commotion and loud yelling coming from Dana and John and possibly Sue but I believe they were quickly silenced by their killers by them attacking their necks. One of them slit John's throat and the other manually strangled Dana and the bludgeoning was to make sure that they were dead because Sue had tried to help stop them from attacking her son. I think the plan to sexually assault her was abandoned and they just killed her too. And with that, Every one of them was dispatched. 
I believe this is part of the reason why none of the neighbors heard any screaming. I think perhaps Sue, at first, did not want to alarm the children that were asleep in the bedrooms when she realized she was going to be attacked, so she stayed quiet. Then when John and Dana arrived, a fight happened, and the killers wanted to quickly silence everyone. They may have used the rifle to intimidate them, and once they had their victims under control, they went for their necks so they would be unable to scream. Once the most threatening individuals in the cabin were dead, I believe Marty wanted to turn his attention to the children that he knew were in the bedrooms. There may have been a moment of commotion and loud yelling coming from Dana and John, but like I said, I think that they were too quickly silenced with those deadly throat attacks, and that's why the two boys remained asleep. Now, both Marty and Bo would be covered in blood, but it was also time to make sure that all the potential witnesses in the house were eliminated. I believe Marty went to the boys' room first. Remember, he knows that his stepson is on the other side of that door. Blood was found on that doorknob that's on the outside of the bedroom in the hallway. I believe Marty quietly turned the doorknob or put his hand on it to push the door open a crack and saw that all three of the kids were in there and that they were asleep. I think he would have killed Rick and Greg too if his stepson wasn't in there. So because of the sleepover, Sue's two youngest children were spared. Next, Marty turned his attention to Tina. There was blood found inside the bedroom, on the wallpaper, and on the bedding. There were blood droplets, which leads me to believe that either one of the killers was injured or one of them went into the room with maybe a bloody knife that was dripping. Either way, because of the botched investigation, blood droplets were not properly documented, collected, or preserved. Meaning if those drops had come from one of the killers and they didn't collect it, the chance to identify him was lost. But I do think it was Marty who deposited and transferred that blood into the bedroom. I believe Marty told Tina to quietly come out of the bedroom. When she did, she brought her blanket with her for comfort. At this point, I do think Justin was awake and either began trying to peer out from the bedroom again or he was listening intently at the door to what was going on now that everybody was dead. The house must have been so eerily quiet. I believe that Marty and Bo still wanted to carry out a sexual assault, but they decided Tina would be easy enough to control and they probably didn't want to be inside that house anymore. So they decided to leave the cabin and they took Tina with them so that they could sexually abuse and assault her at a different location. I think Tina, for the most part, was cooperative because she saw what these men were capable of and maybe she hoped that if she didn't fight that she would be able to survive. The theory that Tina was the intended target of this entire crime has been entertained throughout the years. However, I do not believe that Tina was the intended target. I think both Marty and Bo wanted to sexually assault Sue, and they were preparing to do so in a very violent and sexually sadistic manner with the bindings and the gagging with her underwear. 
when it comes to the muffled screaming that one set of neighbors described hearing around 1.30 in the morning. I think that may have been Tina when she was being taken away from Ketty in a vehicle, or perhaps she was screaming from inside the trunk. And the reason why I think that muffled screaming was her was because at that time in the morning when those neighbors reported those muffled screams, everybody else was dead. Under hypnosis, Justin said that he saw the men leave through the back door with Tina, but he also said that one of them came back inside to place Tina's blanket over her mother. I believe it was Marty who did this, and he did it for either one of two reasons, or maybe it was for both reasons. First, I didn't think he wanted his stepson seeing Sue nude from the waist down, or Tina didn't want her brothers or her sister or anyone else for that matter finding her mother like that and asked if they could cover her up with a blanket. And somehow these maniacs found a tiny sliver of compassion in order to give Sue a little bit of dignity by covering her up. After they left, I believe Justin stayed put for several hours and he may or may not have dozed off until Jamie Seabolt, the next-door neighbor's son, came to their back window, woke all three of them up, and helped them get out of the house through the window so that they would not have to pass through the brutal crime scene. And it may have been during those several hours between the murders and the time that they were discovered that Justin went out into the living room and looked under the blanket. From there, I believe Marty and Bo put Tina into their vehicle, maybe even in the trunk. I think that they either took turns or they both went in at the same time to their own cabin and they cleaned themselves up and they changed their clothes and they put their bloody clothing into the wood-burning stove. Marty's wife, Marilyn, reported to law enforcement that she witnessed them do this. She was woken up by some commotion in the house and found them burning something. They didn't tell her what they had done, and she probably figured she was better off not knowing or she just didn't care. And then they took off with a still-alive Tina in the car. I believe the two of them took turns sexually assaulting her. Maybe they did it while they were driving. Maybe they took turns, but eventually they ended up 65 miles or 104 kilometers away in Feather Falls, California, located in Butte County, which is where they either killed her and left her or they dumped her already dead. I think that they got back to Ketty just in time to get themselves back into their cabin before Sheila Sharp came home to find the carnage inside her family's home that morning sometime between 7.30 and 8 a.m. I believe the confessions and the incriminating statements Marty made to law enforcement, to his wife, and possibly in his letter to his wife, I believe every word he said. I believe he revealed details of the crime that only the killer would know, particularly when he mentioned that he was missing a hammer from his house, and I believe that hammer that was found at the crime scene was a hammer that came from Cabin 28, and the one that was found in the pond in 2016 was the one that belonged to Marty. 
that he did not leave it at the cabin because it could have possibly been linked back to him, so he dumped it on their way out of the Ketty Resort. I believe the confession Marty made to his therapist, and when the therapist contacted law enforcement and informed them of the confession, the sheriff realized that he had already mishandled the case. He had already officially cleared Marty by letting it be known that he had passed the polygraph test, and I think that the sheriff was good enough friends with Marty to decide that he wasn't going to embarrass himself anymore by rolling back on his assessment of his being a suspect or not. Instead, he chose to tell Marty and Bo to get out of Ketty, which they did. The confession to the therapist was never followed up on. The information Marilyn Smart gave to law enforcement was never followed up on. The letter that they obtained where Marty said he paid the price for his wife's love with four lives, and then the 911 call three years later when human remains were discovered, where the caller, before the remains were identified, suggested that police look into the case of that missing girl from Ketty. That 911 call was never followed up on, and I believe the tape was purposely hidden deep in an evidence box and tucked away so nobody could listen to it. Because of the way law enforcement handled the case, the evidence and the suspects, they ended up botching it, and I tend to believe they weren't necessarily doing it on purpose in the beginning. But when the sheriff in charge of the case, Doug Thomas, realized that he was wrong in so many ways in the early stages of the investigation, I think he just started botching it on purpose in order to spare himself the embarrassment of having to admit that he'd effed up from the beginning. And then the sheriff ended up working for the Department of Justice, the agency that he contacted to assist him with the investigation. Maybe his call to them opened up an opportunity, an opportunity for a job that he took when he realized how badly he had screwed up the Ketty case. They did not realize Tina was missing and several critical hours were lost before they did. As a result, the search for her was delayed, the crime scene was not secured, and evidence was not collected in the manner that it should have been, particularly the collection of blood evidence. Critical pieces of key evidence, including very incriminating statements made by Marty himself and his soon-to-be ex-wife, were disregarded, ignored, overlooked and never followed up on. Sheriff Doug Thomas was really good friends with prime suspect Marty Smart, and he should have been taken off the case completely. When Sheriff Thomas did contact the California Department of Justice, the agents who were assigned to the investigation were their organized crime unit agents rather than agents from their homicide unit. I mean, my God, would you send in a podiatrist to perform brain surgery if the neurosurgeon was busy or had a tea time or something? Just because they work in the same hospital doesn't mean that they can just swap jobs for a day just for fun. And those DOJ organized crime unit agents, they interviewed the suspects together at the same time in the same room. I mean, hello? Nobody does that. My opinion is this. I think Sheriff Thomas 
contacted a close connection that he had at the Department of Justice. I think he may have been friends even with the agents that were sent out to the case. I can't fathom any other reason why they would send organized crime agents over to interview for a homicide investigation. And this whole thing with the DOJ ended up helping Sheriff Thomas get a job with them, which enabled him to resign as sheriff before he would have potentially faced being publicly ousted because of his mishandling of the Ketty murder case. Once Sheriff Thomas was gone, once he left the Ketty murder investigation in shambles, I believe it left the case unsolvable until technology advanced enough for cold case investigators to start kicking ass and taking names. It might be too little too late when it comes to getting real and true justice for Sue, John, Tina, and Dana, but I believe that they do have strong leads taking them to other suspects. I believe that those suspects may have been complicit in the cover-up and the conspiracy to cover it up. And I believe they may very well be looking at former members of law enforcement, possibly even the former sheriff himself, some of his deputies, and the people who worked in the Department of Justice who were responsible for quote-unquote assisting with the case. And by the way, when there's a kidnapping of a child, or when a child goes missing, that falls into the jurisdiction of the FBI, even when there is no indication that the kidnapping has crossed state lines. The FBI can and do get involved in cases just like the Ketty murders, high-profile cases, where it is clear that the local law enforcement department is lacking the experience and the resources to handle a case of that magnitude. But Sheriff Doug Thomas chose to call the Department of Justice instead of the FBI, and I believe he did so because he had no connections with the FBI. And the FBI would have uncovered his botching of the case. The connections that I think Sheriff Thomas had at the DOJ would have been more likely to go along with his cover-up, which it looks like they did. As I said, I don't think the cover-up was for the benefit of the killers. I believe it was for the benefit of the sheriff and his department. I also think everything was politically motivated. I don't think the sheriff would have wanted to compromise a mask murder and kidnapping investigation for a garbage human being like Marty Smart but I do think he would, to save his own ass. And in doing so, he robbed the Sharp family and the Wingate family the answers and the justice that they so deserved. Hopefully soon, they will have it. Thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate all of you so much. I hope you have a wonderful week. And don't forget to please stay tuned past this outro for that promo from the Music City 911 podcast hosted by Brandon. Until next time, sweet dreams. The world of 911 emergency dispatching is brutally diverse. One minute you can be talking with someone about parking violations. Uh, what's the process we are to take to have people told? Because it's actually delaying the mail. 
and then all hell can break loose, then the rest of the day is crazy. We could have murders. Hill County 911, what's your emergency? I just killed my children. Home invasions. He's in my house. He's in my house. I shot him. You shot him? He was coming up towards me and I shot him. Natural disasters. Tornadoes made to the goddess. I'm buried under a bunch of Even bombings. My show, Music City 901, will put you in the dispatcher's chair. Put you ear to ear with the callers and responders. And keep you on edge from start to finish. I hope to both educate and entertain, as I'm a 901 dispatcher with over 20 years experience. And just like dispatching, every episode is different from the last. Music City 911. Real 911 calls. Real 911 dispatchers. Available to listen to on any podcast app.